You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. He has been at Princeton since uh, the early 1970s. Alan Blinder is an economist. He's a former vice chair of the Federal Reserve. He is currently the Gordon Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics at Princeton University. And he is the author of a new book. It is entitled Advice and Dissent, Why America Suffers When Economics and Politics Collide. Alan Blinder, thank you very much for being with us. I want to jump right into it. You describe, uh, you have an interesting phrase in in, in the book. I believe it's it's a new world, Tevya. And I wonder if you could sort of describe where you came up with that and maybe just also tell us, how do you define political logic? All right, let me try to do those. Uh, the Tevye phrase was at the end of an anecdote that I was relating from when I, way back in the 90s, migrated temporarily from the academic world to the political world and experienced uh, at the table with Bill Clinton, who was then president-elect, my first photo op. If you're an academic, you don't do a lot of photo ops. In fact, you don't do any. Uh, But if you're a politician, you do. And Bill Clinton, as the photographers rushed in, said to me, "Um, Alan, you're now supposed to say nothing and look profound. And I uh, retorted, it's funny because in my previous jobs, I was supposed to say profound things and look like nothing. Uh, So so it was indeed a new world for me. Um, Your question about political logic goes to a number of things that in formal logic, or what I call in the book, Aristotelian logic, the kind of things we teach in universities, are very different. I'll give you an example that's really arithmetic, which is a form of logic. If you take a policy, and by the way, many details of trade policies and tax policies are like this, that gives a very large um, gift to a relatively small number of people and uh, and also disadvantages, but by small amounts, many, many millions of people, uh, economic logic would likely say that's a bad idea. Right. 
you add it up over the millions of people, and that's a bad idea. Uh, political logic says this is a great idea because the millions of people that lose, you know, I make up a number, $2 a year, are not going to notice it. They won't understand that even if they do, $2 does not move them to political action. Right. But if other people are gaining millions, that will. Professor Blinder, I'm struck by an implicit assumption in this idea that you shouldn't mix economics and politics. Um, are we really worse than we ever have been before? Because this has always been the issue from the foundation of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury Department. It has always been the issue. I think we're worse than ever before, and presumably this is a temporary condition because of Donald Trump's general rejection of expertise in every domain. This is not just economics that he does this in. I can't remember another. I don't think we ever had another president that had that kind of attitude towards expertise, which is not to say, and this is the, your point, really, that they've always followed the advice of expert technicians. No, they haven't. In fact, more often than not, they've rejected it. And that's okay, because um, we live in a democracy, and we elect politicians, not technocrats, to make decisions. Yeah. Uh, Professor Blinder, one area of the government that typically has tried to remain at least the veneer of being somewhat independent from the uh, sort of political regime is the Federal Reserve. There are a lot of vacancies on the Federal Reserve. One Mm. that has uh, garnered some attention is the rumor that John Williams will uh, be the next New York Fed president selection. I'm wondering, what is your feeling about that and just generally about sort of the composition of the Fed right now? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there there has been a clamor for some time for diversity, and I'm very sympathetic to that. I think other things equal, it's better to have diversity. Um, we had a woman chairman of the Fed, which was great, and she was a great chair of the Fed, Janet Yellen. I think John Williams is an excellent selection for the presidency of the New York Fed. That's not, by the way, a political appointment, unlike the governor. You, know, you mentioned the vacancies. The, lots of vacancies exist on the Board of Governors, and for that we need uh, nominees from President Trump that get confirmed by the Senate. Uh, John Williams at the New York Fed or any of the uh, bank presidents of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks are not political appointees. Why do you, what do you want people to take away from the book Advice and Dissent? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd like people to take away the stark contrast between the advice that's given by a lot of economists, and of course it's not all the same, although I do emphasize in the book there's a lot more agreement among economists than people commonly think, and the way that it is ignored or distorted or so on by politicians. I don't want people thinking that I believe that technocrats should be making all these decisions. I don't. But what I think we could do a better job of is, I I use the phrase in the book, moving the needle a, a little bit away from where it is now, where decisions are just so, so political with very little technocratic input that actually matters, and just move it a bit away from that. I think we could get better economic policies if we did that. 
Do you get the sense that sort of career government workers are still head down doing their job, making the country run? Or do you think that the uh, current administration has changed that aspect of government? I think they are there with their heads down doing their job. Some of them hiding under their desk, <laughs> uh, waiting for the storm to pass. But here's the thing. Uh, if, if we, let's draw a sharp contrast between our system and, say, the British system. In the British system, a new government comes in, the minister gets replaced, everybody else stays on the job. In our system, the political appointees come in and they take about the five top levels of the bureaucracy over. And then the technocrats start below that. The, these uh, people that Steve Bannon called the deep state. Uh, except that the State Department, which has been almost denuded, it seems, uh, a lot of the deep state people are still there and they're trying to ride out this storm. The EPA is another place where they're having a very, very hard, uh, very, very hard time. But so it's not just the cabinet member that changes. It's quite a few people uh, in any any, uh, cabinet department. Alan Blinder, thank you so much for being with us. He is the Gordon Rentschler Memorial Professor of Economics at Princeton University, also former Fed Vice Chair. Uh, and he has a new book, Advice and Dissent, Why America Suffers When Economics and Politics Collide. Sinclair Broadcast Group is the biggest U.S. broadcaster. It is uh, trying to tie up loose ends as the FEC decides whether it can buy Tribune Media. And now it's generating a new controversy. Here to tell us uh, more about that, I'm so happy to bring in Jordan Holman, who covers uh, all things related to uh, wages, salaries, compensation, personnel issues. Jordan, Just first of all, can you set the stage? What is the controversy here with Sinclair? So over the weekend, uh, the Sinclair anchors across the country, they were giving, you know, a blanket speech that was saying, we decry false news. And Deadspin put together a video of all these anchors saying the same words. And some people in the media and people watching felt like it was a shot at the integrity of the news media. Okay, so why is this now causing some angst among the uh, nearly 200 stations that Sinclair runs? So a lot of the journalists I spoke to who work at Sinclair, they didn't like that their company was in the spotlight in that negative way, that it looked like they were talking negatively about other media companies. And so the question started to come up, well, why don't you just quit? Why don't you leave and go somewhere else? And people said that in their contract, they would have to pay up to 40% of their annual compensation if they wanted to leave before their contract was over, which if, is a steep price. If they broke their contracts. Yes. So how, is that's, that's my question. I mean, is this normal to have, say, a two-year contract, especially in broadcast, uh, that has a penalty should you choose to quit? So in broadcast, it's normal to have a contract that you ask someone to stay two or three years. But what's not normal that some lawyers said who I spoke to is that you have this steep penalty that you have to give 40% of your compensation if you leave beforehand. And that if it usually applies to on-air talent, but at Sinclair, some people who never appeared on TV had to sign that clause. 
And uh, maybe just also uh, offer up uh, what the response was from uh, Sinclair and the various uh, maybe TV stations or broadcast uh, networks that you were able to contact in regards to the story. So Sinclair's uh, vice president of news, he sent out a memo to all the employees uh, yesterday on Monday saying that critics were upset at their decision to have the anchors read this false news statement, but that context was missing and perspective was missing, missing, and that employees should be proud of where they work. Sinclair hasn't directly um, spoken to Bloomberg about it, but some employees still didn't feel like that was enough. Okay, to be very clear, the lines that we're talking about here are the sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. Some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias. I have to say, you know, there are a lot of people who probably believe this. And, you know, you might even have some journalists who uh, do feel like this is the case um, who work for Sinclair. Why is this different? Right. Why is this different from just a number of people saying something sort of decrying an ambiguous uh, sort of concept? Well, when you go back to the idea of what's the context around Sinclair, they are the largest broadcaster in the U.S. They reach about 38 percent of households in the U.S. So when they're, you know, broadcasting this to all markets across the country, some people don't agree with that. You know, they it seems like you're taking shots within the industry. Well, it, it, but this is this is the key question. Is it the content of what that said or is it the fact that journalists who are supposed to be coming at something from a sort of impartial perspective are given a script to read. I mean, how unusual is that aspect of this? Right. It's definitely something you don't see every day. That's why I think that video really resonated when it was like all these journalists from all these different cities are saying the exact same thing. So it kind of seems like, well, we're Sinclair saying we're being impartial and we're the real journalists, but they're still providing a script, which doesn't always add up. And so, you know, the journalist I spoke to at Sinclair said that that rubbed them wrong. They did not like that. And that they even if they wanted a way out, it just seemed too expensive. Um, there's a case right now, a former employee who works in Florida who sued the or who got sued by the company for leaving early for breaking his contract. And now he's facing that in court and he has a lawyer and it's just an expensive process to want to leave if you want to. And, and also just to add to this, uh, Sinclair is described as the country's largest broadcaster, right? It has about a, it has 193 uh, television stations. And it is seeking to purchase Tribune Media for $3.9 billion. And regulators are looking over that potential acquisition because of antitrust concerns, right? Yeah, it would make it an even huger broadcaster, reaching even more Americans. But but President Trump supports that. Yeah, so yesterday um, he tweeted that Sinclair was a far superior network compared to NBC or CNN. And so he did definitely, you know, throw his hat behind like them as a broadcast institution. Well, I guess this is a story that's going to keep on uh, developing. And we thank you very much uh, for sharing it with us and giving us this detail. Uh, Jordan Holman of uh, Bloomberg News about Sinclair employees uh, saying that contracts make it uh, too expensive uh, for them to quit the company. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. 
And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Uh, one area that we really need to address is in Britain. We are dealing with less than a year now before Brexit Day. The countdown has begun. There are some crucial issues to be decided. It's unclear whether there is much progress being made on them. Here to join us is Baroness Helena Kennedy, a Labour Party member uh, of the House of Lords, coming to us uh, here in our 1130 studios in New York, even though she's normally based in London. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be here. I want to I want to ask about momentum because I think in the U.S., for example, a lot of times when you mention Brexit, people's eyes glaze over. Oh, that's still going on again. Aren't they just going to come to some kind of resolution and everything's going to move on uh, the way it was? Do you think that people are not paying enough attention to the potential ramifications of what's going to have to happen in the next year? It's taken a long time to get to this point. I mean, we've wasted such a, a lot of time um, really dealing with uh, the complexity, which people hadn't fully understood. And so I think that slowly there is a realisation, actually, economically, in terms of peace in Ireland, in terms of uh, the immigration issues, that actually this is not going to be the solution to many of the problems that people felt very strongly about. And so I think that that's slowly filtering through, but it's getting late in the day for there to be any kind of real uh, comeback on that. I mean, we've the deadline now is October. We've been told by um, our the negotiators in Europe. Um, I met with Barnier, who is the, leading the the, U, the European Union negotiations. Um, I met with him a month ago, and he said October is the deadline because it has to go in front of all the European the European Parliament. Um, Just and to be ha- clear, it has to go in front of our Parliament too. October is the deadline for uh, exactly what this Brexit deal would look like. What the deal right. would look like, and. And so, and so we've really got a very small window of time in which to nail this down. And that's the real anxiety because um, already there's been an agreement which is causing a lot of unhappiness, which is uh, the transition deal, a recognition that um, by March of next year, a year from now exactly, we will not be in a place to actually say it's done and dusted. There has to be, we will not, there's going to be a period of transition which will not end until December 2020. And during that period, things will carry on much the same as they are. And so a lot of people are saying, but we voted to leave. We thought it was going to be a, a pretty swift uh, deal and we'd get out and start you know, trading with the rest of the world on our own, not with the rest of Europe. And, uh, and that's not going to be happening. And it's become clear because, for example, business does not want to drop off a cliff, cliff edge. And so they wanted transition and there was a lot of pressure being put on government by, by business and by the city to say, look, we need to have serious transition transition slow, slowly, safely, surely, rather than somehow dropping off the edge and uh, and not knowing where we're going. Uncertainty, of course, is bad for business, but it's bad for everybody and bad for individuals inside our society, too. Uh, Baroness Kennedy, if uh, if Brexit and the, the referendum process uh, were to have appeared before blind justice, and and you know why I'm mentioning this, (laughs) because maybe you can offer people a little bit of your personal background. Uh, 
What do you think would be revealed about the actual referendum process and what people knew at the time of the referendum and what we are learning now about potential foreign interference uh, in, in the referendum to leave or stay inside the European Union? Well, I, it, it is interesting. I mean, the problem with uh, with a referendum is always that the question is simple. Do you want to stay in Europe or do you want to get out? And for many people, the answer to that is actually more complicated. I'd like to leave these aspects of it and I don't want to leave those aspects of it. Or um, And so for many people, it was it, the, the answer was much more nuanced than just saying out or in. Um, and so that's the problem always with a referendum. Um, the fact that we now know that there's a real likelihood, a real possibility that there was interference and that um, Cambridge Analytica, that possibly the Russian Russian money, that there was interference in different ways in the outcomes and the, the ways in which people were influenced to making that decision. I'm not sure that if you said to many of the people now, would you have changed your vote, that they would say that they would have done. They, people like to imagine that they made it on their own beliefs and they were not deeply influenced by the opinions of others or uh, the ways in which they were receiving information. Information. So I don't know whether that would make the, the, the difference. But what people are realizing is that economically it's not going to be it's not going to be the, the day in the country that they were given to understand. The story, the lie, in fact, and it was a lie, was told where, where buses traveled through our cities with this the, the message on the side saying in every week, £350 million more will be spent on the National Health Service if we're out of Europe, because instead of paying money into the con- contributory schemes of Europe, we will have this money available to spend on the National Health Service. In fact, when it was hammered down, it wasn't true. The, the, that piece of information was a completely phony. And if we're talking about fake news, well, that was seriously fake news. So and people are realising that the economic story is not going to be so good. And already people are feeling the pinch. They're feeling that the pound in their pocket is not worth as much. There's been a devaluation. There's a sense in which they're, they're realising that food is going to become much more expensive. Um, there's also there's a, a, a worry that, or certainly food coming from Europe, because of... Uh, of we won't have the benefits of the of the single market or of the customs union where we don't pay customs duties. There's also the, an issue, and I have to say it about the United States, is that we had imagined that there would be great deals to be done with the United States for yeah. us alone because we're special. We have a special relationship with you guys. You're our cousins. And so... And people are now suddenly getting a bit worried because they're hearing your president talking about in much more protectionist terms and about the possibility of tariffs and so on. So they're much more worried about what will that look like and will we get the deals with you or China or India that we imagined and will they follow fast on our leaving Europe or will it take a hell of a long time before it happens? With uh, Within Parliament, when you have private conversations with, say, Brexit hardliners, do you get the sense that any of them are softening their position at all? I, not at all. The hardliners are not shifting one jot. But a lot of the people, the, the, the Remainers, are, are very, on the Conservative benches, the Remainers have the problem that um, they there's a loyalty. They feel, certainly in the House of Lords, many of the people who were appointed, huge numbers were appointed by David Cameron. Many of them Remainers, like David Cameron himself, um, but they do feel a loyalty to party. And I think that it, the, the, it would only be if they really feel that the deal, the ultimate deal is, is 
catastrophic um, that they will they will vote against because there will be a debate in Parliament in October when the crunch comes. And then there's the issue of Labour and what will Labour's position be, which has also been constructive ambiguity was how it was being described, um, uh, you know, saying that they're not happy with the way that the negotiations are going, that they would want to have a much greater and closer connection to Europe in the, in the you know, as we go forward. Um, but but um, Corbyn has been very clear in saying that he's not in favour of staying in the single market. So, men, and of course, the, the vast majority of politicians in Labour do want to stay. So it's all rather messy at the moment. So we, where we're going, still don't know. All right. Well, we look to you to uh, help us understand what's going and, on. I'll come back and give you the inside uh, skinny. <laughs> we we appreciate it and we look forward to it. Baroness uh, Helena uh, Kennedy, a uh, Labour Party member of the House of Lords, uh, joining us here in our 1130 studios. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. My co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. In other news, astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope have found the farthest star ever observed, a bright dot nine billion light years away. I can't wait to go home and talk about this with Anyone who owns a home in Manhattan should be watching this figure. The number of sales plunged the most since the recession. What does this mean for the road forward? Joining us now, Jonathan Miller, President and Chief Executive Officer of Miller Samuel in New York. Jonathan, explain, how concerned should people be about this? Well, I think it's less about concern and more just about awareness. The reason why we saw the sales uh, volume drop is really twofold. Uh, one is uh, we've seen a real drop in um, the uh, closings of what, what I call legacy contracts, uh, new development that's all the super luxury buildings uh, that contracts were signed several years ago that uh, had to, couldn't close until the buildings were completed, and those have largely um, the buildings have largely uh, been completed. So we've seen a real fall off in their closing volume. And that skewed uh, top-level prices down for the market and also uh, contributed to part of this uh, decline in sales. The other big part, uh, and I think probably two-thirds of that 25%, uh, is really related to the uncertainty. You know, the, the, the word location three times is the trite real estate uh, phrase of you know, our lives. Uh, really now it's uncertainty, and, and, and it really has to do with the federal tax law and its impact on high-cost housing markets. It's not that the actual items in the tax law are impacting the market to call the slow, slowdown. It's essentially uh, the uncertainty uh, of it is causing participants to take a little bit longer to make decisions. So, you know, in overall prices actually trended up uh, if you remove um, the new development component to it. So it's really a, um, a market where, uh, uh, you know, I think we're looking at over the next year, buyers and sellers are going to dance around what the new equilibrium is between them. And, um, and we're probably going to see some softer prices going forward.
Jonathan, then what do you say whenever you hear uh, people respond to the question about state and local tax deductions for property tax and that cap of 10000 and uh, basically it gets waved off as not relevant to the actual transaction in a high-cost area such as New York or even in places like California? Do you believe it? Oh, no, not at all. I think it absolutely has an impact. I think the reason why it was waved off is there was this idea that that those additional costs would be offset by uh, a tax cut. Um, but I don't think people, when they have a collection of assets, are going to be willing to overpay for one asset while saving on another. Um, they really look at each asset individually. And and I think, um, you know, there's also a lot of hyperbole about this, but I think the general rule of thumb is the uh, the higher the property price, uh, generally the higher the impact of the new tax law will be on the property. But it really comes down to the individual tax situations of the of you know of the the homeowner uh, more than ever before. Well, this, you raise a really good point, and I think a lot of people dismissed the effect of the tax law on sort of the mortgage deduction being capped at seven hundred and fifty thousand rather than a million dollars as not having that big of an effect. What about that piece of it? Does that have an effect, or is this mostly just the overlap between state and, uh, and federal taxes? I, I think SALT, state and local taxes, is the $10,000 deduction is much more important to focus on than the, the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, that, I think, is, has less of, much less of an impact, if any. It's much more about uh, all the deductions. The way to look at this is, I, the way I, I look at it is uh, that this is really the process of the federal government extracting itself from the home ownership promotion business. And they're hoping that by doubling standard deductions for single and married uh, will provide um, you know, some offset to this. And, and, and that is certainly true. It just becomes more problematic as you shift into higher cost housing markets, which are generally on the east and west coast. Jonathan, give you about 30 seconds. Maintenance fees and the percentage of taxes that are included in maintenance fees, is that going to go up? Uh, I think I think the reduction of of uh, the lack of ability to uh, deduct those um, is going to make ex- maintenance feel a lot more expensive than it currently is. I want to thank you very much, Jonathan Miller, My pleasure. the president and the chief executive officer of Miller Samuel, offering uh, some insight into the uh, Manhattan home market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.